0: Mark chapter 10, we're going to be looking at verses 32 through 52, 32 through 52, as we jump back here into our study of the gospel of Mark. If you're using a Pew Bible, it's page 846, page 846 in the Pew Bible. As you make your way there, let's pray, and we'll read our passage together this morning. Father, thank you for uh, the truth we've sung. Thank you for your goodness to us in Jesus Christ, how he is the true and better Adam. Lord, how he is the one who was on that tree, who suffered for us, yet was raised again, the perfect, sinless sacrifice, the true suffering servant king, who has been raised, who's now ruling and reigning. Lord, who is seated on the throne, who bids us to follow him as his disciples. Lord, help us as we come to your word this morning that we would receive it, that your spirit would use it to make us more like Jesus, to show us our sin, to help us grow, to bring you glory. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. If you found your way to Mark chapter 10, please follow along as I read verses 32 through 52 this morning. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was, happening, what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be, among, be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must also be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. When they came to Jericho, This is a major turning point in the Gospel of Mark. This is really the climax of his narrative argument. So throughout the first 10 chapters, Jesus is being presented as the suffering servant king, right? In the beginning, we have John the Baptist proclaiming uh, the one who is coming, and it is Jesus, and Jesus came proclaiming, preaching the good news of the kingdom, And Jesus demonstrates his kingdom authority as king. He heals the man who is let down by his four friends. He does all kinds of miracles. He casts out demons. He multiplies bread and fish several times. He casts out more demons. He heals sickness. He calms the storm and the sea. All these things demonstrate Jesus's kingdom authority and his power. And then as Jesus displays this, he comes to the point in his conversation with the disciples and his followers, are you in or are you out? Are you a true follower? Or are you someone who is on the outside looking in? We think of the phrases like, the one who is my follower is not my mother or father, but the one who is sitting at my feet. You must forsake father and mother and follow after me. This is the idea of total identity change of following after Jesus above anything else. And he says in Mark 8 and 9, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. So this idea of following after Jesus, of the suffering servant king, the one who has kingdom authority, and it's really building to this declaration of Jesus. We read again of the third prediction of Jesus' death, of two questions that Jesus asked two different groups and sandwiched in the middle of this is this statement in Mark 10 verse 45. For even the son of man came not to be served but to serve to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus's ministry is building to this and now from this we see how Jesus will serve, how Jesus will suffer. For in chapter 11 we see the triumphal entry and now we are really into the passion week of Jesus' death on the cross and the events leading up to that. But here we have this, this pinnacle, this point that Jesus is making of who he is and his ministry and of his identity, of him being the suffering servant. But it really starts with a question asked by James and John and a responding question from Jesus to them and to blind Bartimaeus. And the question that James and John ask are this, in verse 35, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And that's less of a question, more of a statement. And it is dangerous. <laughs> if anybody comes up to you and says, I'm going to ask you something, I just want you to do it. How many of you would be like, okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, whether it's your children, whether it's a coworker, whether it's somebody who is always looking for help or something, hey, I just want you to do something. Don't ask, just, just, just do it, okay? That, that can be dangerous. And you always think that there's ulterior motives, right? Um, as uh, our kids have gotten a little older and a little, dare I say, wiser, and I don't mean that in a good sense, uh, but they are able to put two and two and maybe become a little bit more manipulative. Um, this question or this idea has come up, Dad, can you just do this? Well, why? Well, if I do this, then I can do this, this, and this. Can you do this, Dad? So then I can do this to attack my sister or vice versa, right? This question of just do whatever we ask of you. That's dangerous. And That's what James and John are coming to Jesus and they're asking, but Jesus responds with this question. What do you want me to do for you? What is it? What do you want me to do for you? And he asks the same question to Bartimaeus in verse 51. What do you want me to do for you? And this question really is the, 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 uh, the, the bookmarks or, or the, the, the brackets to this middle statement of Jesus being the suffering servant king. So he asked them, what do you want me to do for you? And he asked Bartimaeus. And in the middle we have this, uh, this demonstration and declaration of Jesus of who he actually is. And who is he? It is this, that Jesus is the suffering servant king. We've talked about this. And our big idea from this passage is this, is that the suffering service of Jesus sets the pattern for all who would follow after him as his disciples. The suffering service of Jesus, who he says he is, of his explanation here, it sets the pattern. And we're going to see a bad following of his pattern and a good following of his pattern. The positive and the negative here in James and John and the disciples, and that of Bartimaeus. The suffering service of Jesus sets the pattern for all who would follow after him as his disciples. So before we get into our positive and negative examples, to set the context here in verse 32, they are on their way to Jerusalem. They are finally on the way, and Mark says, up to Jerusalem. And it's always up to Jerusalem. Why? Because Jerusalem is built on a hill. So, no matter which way you come from, you're going up to Jerusalem, but also because of its importance. Jerusalem was the most important city in Judea, it was the center of worship for the Jews. So, it's always up because of its reverential standing. And they're on their way, and crowds were following, and some were amazed at Jesus, some were afraid because we see the different reactions to Jesus. And as they were walking, Jesus again takes the 12 and he says to them, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man, Jesus' favorite title for himself in the gospel of Mark, the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes and they will condemn him and hand him over to the Gentiles and they will basically mock him and ridicule him and flog him and ultimately kill him but he will be raised again. We see here, in this short statement of Jesus, who is responsible for killing Jesus? Well, the Jews are, and the Gentiles, but ultimately, this is in God's sovereign plan. It's really an interesting statement when you think about it, because Jesus here puts the onus on the scribes and the chief priests, because they hand them over to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles are responsible for killing him as well, but he is predicting this, so... In his prediction, it's understand, understood that God sovereignly knows what is happening. So we see the different facets of, in a sense, who is responsible for killing Jesus, of, of making this happen. Well, the Jews are, and the Gentiles, but yet it's all part of God's sovereign plan in providing the sacrifice for their sin. So Jesus predicts his death for a third time. If you want to look at the other two times, it happens in Mark eight thirty one and Mark nine thirty one. And here in Mark 10, 32. And this is the most clear and descriptive account. And so he he tells them about his coming death, of the suffering that he's going to endure. And in verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who are also referred to as the sons of what? The sons of thunder. That's a cool nickname. I think that's an awesome nickname. It just sounds awesome. But probably the connotation wasn't the best. Being a sons of thunder, meaning they were loud and boisterous. Maybe, maybe you have a couple sons like that. Uh, they were loud and boisterous or they were impetuous, right? They would just act, much like Peter. They, they wouldn't think all the time. They, they acted and then they thought. And so James and John come to Jesus and they say, Teacher, they ask this question they make the statement, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Jesus says, okay, what do you want me to do for you? And they say to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in glory. They want Jesus to give them positions of honor. They are focused on themselves. And Jesus, I'm sure was not taken aback, but awestruck of this is what you're worried about? And before we look at fully what Jesus says, they were so concerned with their own standing that they do not realize what Jesus just said. And our first point is this, is that the suffering service runs contrary to the world and our human nature. The suffering service that Jesus calls us to have as his disciples, it runs contrary to the world and our human nature. Jesus says, you do not know what you are asking. They think it's a position of honor, right? To sit at the right hand is a position of honor. And sitting at the left, well, if you can't sit at the right, you can sit at the left. Those are the only two hands you can sit by, right? Uh, There's no third hand to sit by. So basically, the closer you are to Jesus, the more uh, authority and position of power and honor you have. And so James and John want right and left. They want to be his right and left-hand men. They want to be close to Jesus. They are concerned with the idea of power and authority. And though they might have a desire to serve, they are ultimately focused on themselves. Their self-centeredness makes or is made clear. But Jesus says, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Here is this illustration of a cup and drinking. It's the idea of something that's given to me and I am supposed to drink it. Um, taking medicine, right? It doesn't taste the best often. I don't know, some of the stuff that my kids take, it smells delicious. Uh, it's like this is how they this is like far gone from like the cheap bubblegum flavor that I had growing up that you know, or the bad cherry. I think that's why my wife can't drink Dr. Pepper now because it reminds her of the medicine she took. But sometimes we were given things to drink that, that are bitter. How did I know that my taste was coming back after I had COVID? I could taste the ivermectin in my Powerade, right? Oh, there it is, right? This, what, this taste, what we're going to endure, what we're going to drink And Jesus says, this is the cup that I'm going to drink. This is mine to partake in. And then he uses the term baptism. And our minds go to baptism like we think of baptism, right? The identification with Jesus. But here, it could probably be better translated as, I'm going to be immersed in what's washing over me. What's going to wash over me. So Jesus isn't talking about the the picture of baptism like we were thinking in Matthew 28 or Romans 6 or... Uh, identifying with Jesus, but rather we're gonna—he's gonna be immersed. He's gonna be going through this sacrificial death, this flogging, this punishment. It's something that he's gonna endure. It's gonna wash over him. Jesus says, "I'm gonna endure this terrible, terrible suffering." Are you able to do this as well, James and John? He's asking them, "Do you understand what you are asking?" Do you understand what you're asking for? And they say to him in verse 39, we are able. It's like a child. I can handle this. Help me handle this. I got a new power washer. Ezra wanted to use it. Sure you can handle this, buddy. I made sure I kept him pointed in the right direction. And he squeezed that trigger and it just kind of went like this. I said, okay, you're not yet. (laughs) Are you able to handle this? Jesus is saying, do you realize the amount of suffering that I'm going to go through? Are you able to handle this? You want the position of power and authority and prestige, but yet are you able to go through what I'm willing to go through? They say, well, yeah, we, we are, Lord. And Jesus said to them in verse 39, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. He says, you will endure suffering. You will endure punishment. James and John endured suffering. James, most people, will uh, was martyred for his faith. He suffered. He died. John was in exile on Patmos because of his faith. They endured suffering, yes, but Jesus says in verse 40, but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. Jesus says, those who will sit at my right and my left hand, I don't know, but it's been prepared for someone who is going to be serving me. And why is this such a big deal? Why do we not, does Jesus not know? Well, he doesn't, we don't know that he doesn't know, but he doesn't, he doesn't share. And more than likely here, the idea is that Jesus is saying Those who are great in the kingdom are those who are least in our worldly minds. And it runs contrary to the world and our human nature. And Jesus is going to get there. In verse 41, the 10 heard it and they were indignant at James and John. This isn't that they were like, oh, James and John, that's so immature. How could you ask such a question? Most commentators think that they were indignant because James and John beat them to the punch. What do you think you deserve to be in that position? I deserve to be in that position. You just imagine the disciples talking and arguing with themselves and so focused on who was the greatest among them. We've seen that a couple times. But Jesus turns to them and he says to them, and this is, this is really where the rubber hits the road here. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. So what is the way of the world? As we talk about how Jesus' is suffering service runs contrary to it. Well, the way of the world is this is that the rulers lord it over them. The rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. They believe that someone who is in a position of leadership and power has ultimate authority and they lord it over them. <clears throat> it's their way or the highway. They see that in Caesar, they see that in the Roman. Governors and the provincial governors and even the local magistrates where it's their way or the highway. The power goes straight to their head. I'm sure we could all think of somebody or we know somebody who gets a little bit of power then all of a sudden they're Napoleon, right? They think that they are king of their little domain. The power goes right to their head whether it's a, an official government position or another position of some authority. And they lord it over them. And then they say they're great ones. They exercise dominion over them. This isn't a good dominion. This is a, the idea of knowing everything that's going on and having to make sure that they allow everything to happen. This is the way of the world. The world views leadership as ruling with an iron fist, of top down, of my way or the highway, or, or keeping other people under control, having people serve them. But What does Jesus say? Verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. It's completely opposite. For whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Jesus says, whoever wants to be great in the kingdom, they will be a servant. That term servant is the same term for deacon. It's diakonos. It's a servant. One who serves without reference to themselves. To be great in God's kingdom is to be a servant. And then he says, whoever wants to be first, who has that position of authority and and recognition and prestige, they will be a slave of all. That term slave or bond servant, maybe your Bible translates it. It's the term doulos. It means one who has no recognition for their own rights or own position, but they seek to serve their master. They seek to serve the one who who is ruling over them. So the great ones, whoever wants to be first, will be slave of all, will be a slave ultimately to Jesus. The contrast is stark and clear here. The way of the world says, rule through power and dominion and authority with an iron fist, lording it over them. Where the way of Jesus, the kingdom way, is, no, you will be a servant. You will be slave. You will not seek your own, but you will seek to serve others. And this is who Jesus is. And this is what he says, verse 45. He says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. So the disciples hear this thing, okay, well, easy for you to say, Jesus, you're God. (laughs) You're God. Of, Of course you would say something like this. But Jesus says, no, even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus says, He is the ultimate example of this idea of the world being flipped upside down. And he uses the term son of man that comes from Daniel 7. And the son of man in Daniel 7 is one who enters into the throne room and what does he receive from the ancient of days? All authority and power and dominion. Jesus is the one who has all this authority, power, and dominion, and he's the one who deserves it. But yet he doesn't live that out in a sense. He humbles himself. He doesn't let that go to his head, but rather he comes as a servant. The one who truly deserves to rule and reign and have dominion over all comes as a servant. And ultimately, to give his life as a ransom for many. The term ransom is that same idea of redeeming, of purchasing, of buying back for many. Of many, of of the contrast of serving self versus serving many. Here, the disciples are focused on themselves, and they do not realize that to be a suffering servant in the way of Jesus means that our suffering service runs contrary to the world and our human nature. Rather than looking out for ourselves, we seek to serve others. One author said this, at no place did the ethics of the kingdom clash more vigorously with the ethics of the world than in the matters of power and service. That's huge. Think of this from Philippians 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And what's the motivation of that? Well, have this mind among you, which is also yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was God, took on humanity. He served. He came. He died. Jesus is the ultimate example of this. Of this suffering service. And this is it turns the thinking of the world upside down. And for us, I think far too often, we are in the position of James and John where we let our self-centeredness creep in to our following after Jesus. We aren't fully like, it's all about me, but in different ways, in small snippets, in fading shades in our decision-making, we let our selfishness creep in. And this is the battle. This is the battle. In our service of Christ, do we do it to make a name for ourselves? Do we do it to have influence and sway, to make sure that things get done our way? Or do we humbly serve without thought of what we can gain? Especially in the world today, following after Jesus can be difficult, but in some regards, there can be much blessing and benefit from it, and making a name for yourself, especially with social media and and the internet, and things like that where you can make a platform for yourself. It's tempting for a pastor. How many followers do you have? How many people are listening to me? Rather than to simply serve the body with which God has given you. And in our own little worlds, in our own little kingdoms, we want to have the authority to say, you know, it should be done this way. Rather than saying, Lord, I'm just here to serve whatever way you would have. It's not about me. It's about you. Just as it, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus, being the suffering servant king in his suffering service, it runs contrary to the world and our human nature. But we give thanks because the suffering service runs on the mercy of God for sinners. Their second point. We see this here. They continue on and they're going to Jericho. They're making their way to Jerusalem and Jericho's on the way. Uh, This is roughly the same area as Jericho and Joshua, uh, but it's more than likely probably a half a mile or a mile away, but still the same general location. Um, And he was leaving Jericho, it says in verse 46, and a great crowd, uh, with a great crowd. And Bartimaeus, who's a blind beggar, and he hears that Jesus is coming. And he was sitting by the roadside. Very common for beggars to sit along this busy road because a lot of people would travel. It's where they would get uh, alms and offerings. And Jesus is walking by and Bartimaeus hears about Jesus. And he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth. And what does Bartimaeus say? He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This is Uh, If it's not the first time, it's one of the first times that Jesus is referred to son of David here in the gospel of Mark. And this is really interesting because it almost depicts what's going to happen now in Mark 11. Here is Jesus on his way to Jerusalem and Bartimaeus say, Jesus, son of David, son of David. Because what did the crowd say on Palm Sunday when Jesus entered into Jerusalem? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail the son of David. Hosanna. It's almost like a a little foreshadowing here of Bartimaeus proclaiming Jesus, son of David. And what does he want? He wants mercy. He understands who Jesus is and he says, have mercy on me. Verse 48, and many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. That phrase, and many rebuked him, told him to be silent, is the same phrase that was used by the disciples when people were bringing uh, children to Jesus. And they were saying, get these kids away from Jesus. They rebuked them. They said, he doesn't have time for this. And what does Jesus say? Yes, I do. You must have a faith like a child to come. You must have this humility like a child to come to me. And now they're rebuking blind Bartimaeus. And Jesus says, no, no. No, bring him to me. Jesus said, call him. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up. He is calling you. Verse 15, throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Now, did somebody help him? Was Jesus closer? And we thought we don't necessarily know, but he came to Jesus. And Jesus asked this question. This is the same question he asked James and John. What do you want me to do for you? And James and John were focused with a self-centered attitude. Lord, we want you to make us great. Give us a position of authority. And what does Bartimaeus ask? He just simply asked, Lord, let me recover my sight. A rabbi, let me recover my sight. You have one who is self-centered, seeking position and authority and proceeds. And and Bartimaeus is looking for mercy. Yes, he's asking for his, his sight back, but it's grounded in the fact that he's looking for the Lord's mercy. Verse 52, and Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Again, the faith of Bartimaeus in Jesus and who he is. His object of his faith was right. It was Jesus. And he says, your faith has made you well. Jesus tells Bartimaeus, go your way. Your your sight is returned. Go. And immediately he recovered his sight. Again, Jesus' complete healing has given him sight. But what does Bartimaeus do? Does he go his own way to live his own life? No, he followed him on the way. He follows Jesus. Jesus walks into the life of Bartimaeus and heals him. And what is Bartimaeus' response? It's one of humility and following after Jesus. The interaction with Bartimaeus is a picture of the service that Jesus was just talking about. Here is someone who needs ransomed, spiritually. And Jesus sets him free. And sets him free from the the blindness. And following after Jesus means as we receive his mercy, we act on that mercy towards others. The response of James and John was one of self-centered and prestige and power and position, and Bartimaeus simply wanted mercy and help. Jesus serves Bartimaeus. He rebukes and corrects James and John. He is the suffering servant king, the one who came not to be served, but to serve. And in his serving, he serves Bartimaeus. And what does Bartimaeus do? In returns, he follows after Jesus. One author says, this theme has two main applications for contemporary Christians. The first is to recognize our own status as sinners saved by grace, or by God's grace alone. And this should create both gratitude to God and humility towards one another. Second, God's love for the law should prompt us, his people, to show the same love and concern for those on the margins of society, whether the poor, the disabled, or those weighed down by the burdens of life. The suffering service that we are called to as his disciples runs on the mercy of God. We've been shown mercy. Therefore, we are to show mercy to others. How has the mercy of God humbled humbled you? Don't miss it. Don't miss Jesus and how he's ransomed you. And if you've been ransomed, may we be quick to follow Jesus like Bartimaeus and may we proclaim to the lowest of the low without thought to what it might gain us, the wonderful mercy of God found in Christ. Following after Jesus, the suffering service of Jesus sets the pattern for all who would follow after him as his disciples. If you are a disciple of Christ, we are to mimic, we are to be empowered by God's mercy to also be a suffering servant. Now, may we go through everything that Jesus went through? No, but we are called to serve, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow after him. One final quote here. True discipleship involves not only a persevering faith, but also a willingness to leave all and follow Jesus. After being given his sight, Bartimaeus follows Jesus on the way. The healing has been given is an opportunity to follow the way of Jesus. Discipleship means giving up pride and self-interest and seeking God's kingdom first. It is significant that while James and John seek the best seats in the kingdom, Bartimaeus asks only for mercy. Curiously, Jesus asked both the same question. What do you want me to do for you? Yet their motives are very different. James and John seek power and glory. The blind man wants only to see. True discipleship means seeing the world God's way and submitting our life to his purpose and will. May we follow in the footsteps of Jesus. May we understand that the suffering service of Jesus sets the pattern for all who would follow after him as his disciples. May we follow may we serve. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this opportunity to look at your word, to remind it of your goodness to us in Christ. Lord, as we've received mercy, may we show mercy to those in our lives. May we humbly follow, and may we understand life is not about us, but about you, the one who has given his life as a ransom for many. Lord, not my will, but your will be done. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.